you're listening to Pardon the Disruption with your host, Tom Young. Hi, this is Tom Young. Welcome to our show. Let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. Hey, this is Bart Gallo. This is TJ Young. This is Rohan Kapoor. Great. Hey, thanks, guys. Hey, today we're going to talk about, um, in our disruption series, um, winners and losers and what happens when we, all this disruption from digital technologies get implemented in society and businesses and our lives that we live, you know, who wins and who loses? So it's a pretty controversial subject, something we're probably not going to get through in a 20, 30 minute podcast, but we are, Rohan, doing a meetup later in the month in New yep. York on this topic. Yeah, really excited. So next Wednesday, um, we're going to be doing a topic, uh, be the 20, 23rd of Jan, in New York, doing a to- doing, talking about this very topic. We've got a really cool guest speaker, Rob High, who's um, the CTO for IBM Watson, is coming along and we're having a discussion about it because I think it couldn't be more topical and it also couldn't be more controversial. Um, people people need to kind of, we need to, ed- ed- people need to realize and open their eyes that this is happening. Um, this isn't something that's like 20, 30, 40 years away. It's happening now. Um, and, and they need to be aware of this topic. And that's kind of why we wanted to bring it to the fore, both in the podcast and the meetup next week. Um, we've got Davos coming around the corner. We were talking about it 22nd. So the World Economic Forum, um, they host an annual event, Davos in Switzerland. All the world's business leaders attend some some really um, powerful people in the room and the theme that they're talking about is... We're not so, going to so. talk about the Bilderbergers, are we? <laughs> no. I think they're meeting down the street. That's, that's more exclusive. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's way more exclusive <laughs> than this. Um, they'd love to be at that. Uh, so yeah, uh, this is a hot topic for them as well, uh, as it should be. So, um, you know, it's there's a lot of change going on and people need to uh, face up to that. I was introduced to the notion that, you know, for for one, you know, I would say a a common paradigm that people have is, is that progress and technology creates uh, a general uplift. And I think there's a lot of truth to that as we think about it from an incrementalism perspective that it's hard to argue that technology hasn't improved our lives. And so in that sense, you could have a paradigm that says we're all winners. And so I think even introducing the notion that there are winners and losers here opens up people's ideas that there might be something beyond just a general good improvement of general welfare. And so this goes back to the Luddites and even goes back before then where people viewed technology as a threat to their existence, to whether it be their job, they could be their livelihood, how they uh, interact with people. You know, you hear today, people say, well, my kids are on their phones all the time, they don't pay attention. Yeah. We talked about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think obviously, so in this debate, there's two sides of the argument. One is that all of this new technol- technological change is gonna be a creator, it's gonna create jobs elsewhere. Um, the other side of that argument is that with uh, all of this advancement in technology, that's automating a lot of the um, jobs that human used to perform, that there's not gonna be that same job creation elsewhere. Um, and I think that I think part of the problem is that I, I'm of the belief that there is obviously gonna be job creation, um, 
but those jobs are going to be created in areas such as data science. And I don't think you have to be a data scientist to compete and win in this new economy and new jobs, but you definitely have to be data literate. Um, and even getting to that point for a lot of people is is going to be a really big challenge. So um, it's... It's so th that really is the argument with ec economists. They say, oh, there's going to be all new jobs created. And there's no doubt that new jobs are going to be created from all this. The issue is the algebra of those new jobs. How many of them? Where are they? Relative to the jobs that are displaced. So, for example, let's use an analog intervention like the steam shovel. We don't have people digging ditches by hand anymore. Machine does it. But you need a machine operator. You need people to build the machine, service the machines, take care of it, uh, prep the site. And the people who used to dig ditches are now doing something else. And so the issue gets to the notion of the timing of the displacement and the algebra of the job loss and job creation. So TJ and Bart, you guys just got off a project where you did quite a bit of automation deployments in a white-collar environment. You had some people embrace it and some people or a little hostile to it, is that fair? Yeah, I think the initial uh, response to it is, hey, I'm losing a portion of my job and I'm losing a portion of my, you know, in turn, relevance to the company. Uh, the ones who really embraced it saw that if they were the ones championing that work, then they are showing, you know, upper management, you know, their direct uh, supervisors in the company overall that they are thinking ahead and that they're looking to kind of drive benefits for the company beyond just saying, hey, keep me working here. So they were able to do more with less essentially or do more of the same, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, if, their same, if, if their same kind of work process was automated uh, afterwards, it's really doing the same, but I can do more because I have these, you know, quote unquote bots working for me. Um, but just back to the winners versus losers, I think it's not really an or discussion, right? It's, there's going to be both. Mm -hmm. But the question is, will there be more of one? And how lopsided will that be? Right. I think the shock with the winners versus losers discussion and to kind of tie it to some of the responses we saw to the automation project that we worked on was I think a lot of people who are casually fo following automation think of this coming wave of uh, new labor technologies as almost like a follow-up wave to the physical automation trend that happened um, you know, decades ago and has been going on. And I think maybe some people don't see that a lot of the jobs that are going to be affected um, are routine work that happens um, in a software ecosystem. And it's not necessarily someone who works a physical repetitive job who's going to be the only person impacted by this. And it's, it's qu the question is, it's not just uh, the fact of automation displacing you too. I mean, that, that's one huge force that's, you know, pu pushing this discussion, but it's also just different ways to satisfy the need, mm -hmm. right? So we did a lot of work in, you know, for call centers to make them, you know, operate more efficiently. And you could say, hey, you know, a script could run there to make it more efficient, or you know, maybe that person sees a threat of another person that's working there that's, you know, a bit more efficient than them, you know, another human. But we're seeing, I think that this conversation's really above just automation. It's about quote unquote digital, right? So one of the digital trends we're seeing is uh, more richer user experiences and rich UIs being developed so that people can service themselves, really, just the way that Amazon's developed, right? So how often do you call the service center for Amazon? How often do you call it call center? Almost never. I had yeah. a chat once, once, and it was yeah. a great experience, and right. I hope I never have to do it again. So <laughs> the example here is uh, you know, traditional models for the call center, people call when they have an issue. Uh, what's better than that? 
give them the tools themselves so that so they can solve their own problems. Right. right. Well, you can't lead with something like automation because you should be thinking about the problem and what's the solution for it. And maybe automation is involved in that. Right. Maybe it's some other technology or maybe do we even have to do this anymore? Exactly. Like, maybe some, some of these digital platforms enable the end cons uh, consumer or customer. Self-service. And will eliminate some of this work in the, front, in the first place. So it's not just we talk a lot about better, faster, cheaper. But just think about how all these digital tools, not just automation, are advancing to change the way that a service is run entirely. Right. And is, is that a threat to you? And how can you adapt because of that? So do you think people will fall into three buckets almost um, once this change does take hold and jobs do get displaced? It's almost like the people that have the um, attitude and aptitude to adapt, and they will, and they'll succeed. There's people that have the have one or the other that will kind of fall in this like middle area where maybe they just don't push themselves and not ambitious enough to change whatever it may be, um, and they'll kind of sit in the middle where they could either take that take take either side, and then there's a whole huge bucket of people that just would not have the ability to pick up a job in this new digital revolution that's taking place. Um, well, that's the controversial part of this. Yeah. I was at a conference in Palo Alto with a lot of thought leaders uh, in the industry, um, a lot of Silicon Valley types there. And this is, uh, I want to say, two, two and a half years ago. And we people were, we were debating this topic, in fact. It was winners and losers. And some people were saying, well, we're going to create a whole bunch of great new jobs for people. And we we're trying to say, well, what are those jobs? You know, you could say data science and engineering types. And one of the guys uh, raised his hand, he said, I wanna remind everybody that half the people have an IQ of 100 or less. And the room was like silent for like 10 seconds, which was a long time in that, in that room. And it reminded, it reminded people that this is, when you think of the automation, physical automation, like with steam shovels and the assembly line, you're automating muscle work. And people pivoted to starting using their brains more to participate in the economy. What digital is doing is replacing, it's in a broad sense, brain work. Mm -hmm. And when you replace that, you have to say, well, what's after that? I would argue it's things like conceptual things that require things that are outside of what we consider AI and t digital technology is good at, but there's a to me the algebra is going to be off. There's going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot of winners, but probably more losers. Well, the question is if if the the work is changing and the jobs are changing, there's going to be different roles in the future that are relevant. So we have to ask: Well, is it a safe assumption to make that oh those jobs will be more advanced? Which meaning you know the people on, you know on the low end of that IQ curve won't be able to adjust. So the adjustment issue is one thing, but do they have the capacity to adjust? Are those jobs inherently more difficult to perform or more difficult to learn the skills needed to perform well, mm. right? Or, you, you, I mean, you can make the argument that these technologies, you know, automating at this base layer of, you know, low, you know, repetitive, uh, low effort tasks, maybe they are eliminating some of the barriers to entry to more advanced skill sets if you're able to learn how to use these tools. And maybe learning to use those tools to do more of that menial work that's tedious is easier than learning some of those initial workflows in the beginning. Mm. So, Ron, you said three types of people. So think of it this way. There's people who make things happen. There are people who watch things happen. 
And then there's people who say, what happened? <laughs> right? I would say the losers are in that third category. Mm -hmm. People who aren't paying attention to what's happening. Right. And they're assuming that tomorrow looks like yesterday. Mm -hmm. And that'll be true for the next few days, metaphorically. But then it won't. That's true. And so you have to at least put yourself in the second category, which mm -hmm. is to watch things happen. That's the purpose of this podcast. It's the purpose of the work we do, our meetups, the book we're coming that's coming out this spring, and to, set, to educate people so that they can at least watch what's happening. Now, we would also encourage people to step up into the realm and say, start making things happen because we know if we want to focus on the winner side of this, the people we've worked with who've embraced this change have, with their own jobs and their corporations, increased their compensation, their responsibility significantly. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Bar, you and yes. TJ work with these guys. Absolutely. The ones that embrace it, you get out of cycle raises, moving up, promoted, et cetera. Rapidly. Well, if you, if you can show you can adapt, then you can show that you can take on more, I think inherently. Yeah. And then you are uh, not as prone to obsolescence. So anyway, I was introduced to this concept. Uh, Martin Ford wrote a book called Lights in the Tunnel. And I had to look up when he wrote the book because it was some time ago, but I was surprised to see that it was 10 years ago. And his book sat on the shelf and was not really widely read for about two or three years. And then it started to get picked up around 2012 and 13 in the circles that I work in. I read the book along with some of the other people in the industry and were saying, wow, this is a pretty interesting. The guy had a really insightful point of view as to why losers get created here disproportionately than prior innovations. And it had to do with the fact that digital technologies don't require people in the supply chain to perform the end-to-end -end service. And as a result, you, less people are employed and wealth is concentrated to the owners of digital production. And if you look at something like Instagram, like Facebook, like um, Netflix, these are firms that have very high valuations um, and don't have a lot of employees. If you look at Uber, it's the same thing. They have a, very few employees. Their drivers aren't employees, by the way. They're just contract labor that are paid by the, by the drink. But the actual number of employees is very low relative to the, so the people who own Uber are Uber wealthy. And so you see this wealth concentration that you didn't see going back to say the, at the height of industrial revolution with like, you know, the Ford auto plants where Henry Ford paid his people very well, created the middle class in the Detroit area back in the 1920s to the 1950s. Those people could buy a house, they could send their kids to college and enjoy the classic American dream middle class life. That's very difficult today when you think of you know, people in the middle of the curve or on the bottom side of the middle of the curve, I think they're struggling today. So for, for, for people listening to this podcast, the, the younger crowd um, growing up in this time, I feel are better equipped for it because they've grown up with technology. They're going to, I think a lot more of them are tech savvy and they're also aware of what's happening. So it's what they study 
um, has a bit more relevance, I think, and that's starting to change. There's more investment, like MIT are investing in um, teaching these new technologies. So I think for them, it's probably going to be fine. For the, for the middle gap where perhaps they went into industries um, that were about to or going through this big shift, now they might be listening to this thinking, okay, I agree, I see it happening, but maybe a kind of, it's it's difficult for them to think about like how do I, how do I move to to a place where I can sit on the winner side, if you like, of of this conversation? What would be the advice for how someone caught in that middle transition period should should be thinking about going after trying to um, trying to you know learn about and we, position themselves? It's actually to, we when we screen people to to be on our team. Mm -hmm. We look for the two criteria, which is attitude and aptitude. So attitude is really a choice. And the, and the attitude that you need is the attitude to be able to embrace change, uh, to participate in it versus fight it, uh, to be able to learn new things, uh, work hard, have fun, all, those, all the things that would be a, an ingredient for success. But then you have to have the aptitude, which is a second critical component. And this is where honesty is required. Not everybody has the aptitude at all levels of the digital agenda. That's not to say there aren't places that people can participate in, but I think it's important in our society where there's a lot of uh, blowing smoke and uh, false self-esteem created by platitudes given to people. I think it, here's a case where you really need honesty around your aptitude so you know where to put your focus and attention. And I think that's a key point because there's a lot of different entry points here, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just the engineering, data science roles. There's a lot of ethical debate going about. There's a lot of policy setting, both in companies and um, at government level. There's a lot of different entry points that people can, can kind well, of go uh, into. Somebody who is non-technical, mm -hmm. who can read about these disruptive technologies. There's going to be a huge demand, there already is a huge demand, for people around change management and helping organizations cope with the change. And that's a high EQ versus IQ, emotional intelligence versus uh, intellectual intelligence. Somebody who can help organizations go through that change. It could be everything from training to uh, talking to people to inspiring people. So there's, it's it's not just uh, a lot of nerds sitting in, you know, computer rooms doing things. There's obviously those jobs will exist, but it's the, you have to really give this some thought. Which is why we want to expose people to a lot of conversations around this topic, so they can see where where is there a gap that's required, and what can I go do? What can I? How do I take my aptitude and my attitude and apply it to a, a position where I can be a winner? I would be surprised if if you had the attitude that you couldn't find something to go do unless you you really had some problems. But I think most people could do it. I just think you need to be honest about what you can do. Mm -hmm. I think just tinkering, tinkering and experimenting with some of these tools or even free tools that are available today uh, will go a long way to get yourself into more of like a do-it-yourself mentality. Mm -hmm. And I think those people are the ones that are valuable to quote-unquote digital organization, right? Mm -hmm. So. It's, it's no longer, oh, I'm going to go study this, you know, get a degree, maybe get a postgraduate degree, and then 
I'm going to have a career in this field, maybe doing some of the same work for 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. It's more so you need to be adaptive to say, hey, I, I have the aptitude and the passion, the attitude to say, hey, if there's a broad problem with ambiguous instructions, yeah. I am able to pull together the tools, methodologies, and the, you know, the different blocks needed to solve that issue. And having that ability comes with just trying new things, experimenting. Yeah. Right? Yep. Going, not just going deep in one area, but uh, being broad. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's that acceptance of not, not, it's that can-do attitude, right? It's not, it's not a case of, oh, I, I don't know how to do this. It's, I don't know how to do this, but I'll figure it out. And I think that skill has always been valuable. Yes. But now it's, it's. Because a lot it, of those lateral movements you can make into different sorts of jobs that wouldn't yeah. be related. And because mm -hmm. the cycle, the churn of relevance for some of these technologies and industries right. are going to be changing and really getting more and more compressed, you're not competing with people who have decades more experience than you do. Right. right. And so, you see that in some of the jobs that get posted, right? Like SVP of technology. Right. And, that, and that's a new can't, thing. Can't be older than 31 or so something you're, you're, like you, that. You can en you enter the market and you are now competitive with uh, the larger set of people. I mean, as long you you have a chance at any point as these disruptions occur to be ahead of the pack. You're not constantly chasing someone else who was a great years ago. Yeah. I think that's a crucial point. You could read about this stuff right now and you could become an expert with a month's work worth of hard reading and, and, and understanding as some of these guys in, in the space, which is the opportunity, right? Versus the threat. Yeah, I'll go back to the attitude and aptitude. One of the attitude issues is you have to be a curious person. Mm -hmm. I mean, if all this stuff bores you um, and you're not likely to be able to apply the amount of effort required to power up in this space. But I would just say this, people who are interested are interesting. And right. interesting people will be end up on the winner side of this fence. Now, again, there'll be lots of debates as to will it be a 50-50 split or it'll be, but I I tend to think there'll be few winners and lots more losers. Uh, but I want to encourage as many people that I come in contact with to come out on the winner side. And I think the first the first step is to become aware of all these things and don't assume that what's coming is is going to look like the rearview mirror. The fact that it's digital and not analog allows it to scale at a pace that makes it very hard for people to adapt. And you know, we talk about, and we've talked about in one of our case studies that's actually going to be in our book about how fast Blockbuster went out of business, the, the mm -hmm. video rental store. They had like 65,000 employees, I think, if I, memory serves. And they went bankrupt in months when once Netflix decided to start streaming uh, their service. And it, because once Netflix figured out the streaming they didn't have to build out the stores. If you have to build out stores and compete with Blockbuster on Blockbuster terms, getting permits, building buildings, hiring people, getting staff, that takes time, takes years. Whereas if I, if I all of a sudden I just stream it and I figure that out, boom, it's available. And it's not just the digitization. So that's a great example where this was an analog service. I had to physically distribute DVDs before that, Blockbuster VHS tapes, you can keep going back. And it's finally digitized. It's something that we can stream, and it's purely ones and zeros, and it goes, at the, you know, really the only limit to speed of light. 
But there's also, I mean, digital is even you know broader than that. It, it can go to what can what can scale exponentially, right? So take another trend that we talk about a lot: three uh, D printing, right? So the the that job in and of itself is a physical task where we're creating something in the analog realm. Why that's a you know a highly scalable you know exponential digital trend, digital technology is because I, I, I would say, I mean, you guys can argue with this, but I think it's the standardization of the assembly approach, which can then propagate instantly throughout the network so that the information is what is scalable and what can be seamlessly sent around the world to someone else who has a machine. Mm -hmm. And then they can create something if they have the right raw materials. Yeah. Yeah. So you can take whatever design and architect for that mold you're making and you can propagate that through through standardization right through standardization for sure so i guess just on a on a, a kind of closing point um how much of this do you think as well we've talked a lot about the personal level and how you can personally um t kind of compete in this realm how much of of this do you think is a kind of responsibility for CEOs and leaders of organization in terms of helping to reskill their existing, you know, work, uh, work, workforce and talent pool into being able to compete in this new paradigm. Obviously it's automation will definitely remove jobs, but it will create opportunities within companies. How much of it do you think is, is their responsibility? Obviously a lot's going to rest on the people themselves. Um, but it's surely think, it's a challenge. I, I, when you get into the social responsibility with public CEOs, I think it's a lot of talk, hmm. right? Their responsibility is a fiduciary one to their shareholders. I think when you get into the political realm or the academic side, then then it's a different issue on a public policy basis. But back to CEOs, their interest is they want to tr retrain their people because it's a lot easier to retrain your people and especially the ones who have the capabilities to do this, the, the aptitude, and put them into sort of your digital frontiers, then to go hire this. Go try to hire a data science today. Go try to hire somebody in cybersecurity. Go try to hire somebody who's an automation deployment expert. They're very hard to find, and they're extremely expensive. It's much easier to train somebody to do that. So. When we do our consulting gigs, as an example, we talk about two aspects. There's the aspect of saving money, and we'll use the phrase defense. So we, defensive, you'll save money, be more efficient, and all those things are true. But then there's an offensive capability that says, I'm going to create new capabilities with the people that I have and create new revenue and business opportunities. And so that's the, really the not an obligation or responsibility. I would say it's an opportunity for CEOs to think about what if their people had an extra 10 or 15 hours a week, what would you do with it? And I would just, and I would say this, it's the, to me, I would look to the CEO to be responsible for having the vision to inspire the people mm -hmm. to come up with that answer versus making it top down. Mm -hmm. I think the companies are going to be successful. I think there was a great quote from Steve Jobs that I, that I remember reading on one of these memes that went around the Twitter sphere. And it said, we don't tell people what to do, we hire smart people and they tell us what to do. <laughs> and it's an attitude that you don't often see in corporate America. Typically the person who has the most stripes, the biggest paycheck, when they walk in the room, you know, their opinion is what rules as opposed to 
a different point of view that says let's let's let the best ideas move forth. So I think it's the challenge of the CEOs for them to inspire their people to answer the question, what would you do with the extra time? And if there is no answer, then then it's going to end up you're going to end up employing less people as your business model shifts to a more digital footprint. But I think the, the opportunities for offensive adjustments, which is moving your people into new realms, we're just I think we're just beginning to understand that and tap into that, and that's what we're trying to do with our with our engagements with our clients now, is to engage in a conversation that helps them think that through. What if your people had more time and we could get rid of the mundane part of the work? Because that, that's going to create, initially, a lot more winners. I think the losers in, at a macro level manifest later. There'll be some short-term losers, but I think for the most part, the losers manifest much later in this curve. I've been looking at this for five, six, seven years now. I would have thought it would have come faster, and mm. I was wrong. And so I have to step back and temper my expectations about how fast this is going to happen. I will say the number of winners have, have come just like we thought, but the, 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 the what I'll call the loser wave, that's probably years off. McKinsey wrote an excellent um, white paper back in 2013 from the McKinsey Global Institute, and they predicted in 10 years it would impact uh, a huge portion of the economy. Now, they haven't updated that forecast, but I would suggest they were probably a little bit more aggressive in the, on the impact side. It'll probably take a little bit longer. They were saying in 2013, uh, their, their, their projection was for 2025, and they were talking about, in, in the order of trillions, the impact the automation would have. So yeah. I'd be curious, I mean, it would be good if they revisited that number to say- I thought it was 2023, 2023, years. oh, so even less than that, okay. Yeah, and I just, I keep on touch at the top of that because that was a, a seminal paper that informed my thinking. And I just don't think it's gonna happen that fast. It might, and again, it's a parlor game to, to predict. And when is it gonna happen? Yeah. Well, I don't even know what it is for one. It's, a, it's happening. Uh, and arguing about the rate of it is a parlor game. Mm-hmm. And the more time we have, the more time we have to adjust. And that's what we want to get out. Because my, my objective would be to have as many people that come in contact with us to be winners. So that we become valuable to them. And we are a net asset to the people we interact with. It seems like there's going to be a couple of philosophies that need to change in the IT world for this to really propagate. I mean, so you'll see a business you know, be progressive and you know thinking forward, and they'll invest in some technology and then implement it. But there's still this paradigm of you know we're going to advance our ERP or we're going to deploy some new technology, and then there's always this notion of being done. We're going to be maybe standardized across a couple regions, and we we just redefined our processes and we're we're streamlined now, and then we're done. There needs to be a change in the way we design things, a way that we approach design thinking, so that you design services, you design your technological footprint so that they're adaptable and flexible and not prone to disruption. Mm-hmm. A lot of the issues we come across with and with our clients, we could be talking about a technology deployment, you know, new contracting for services, talking about those commercial models, but a lot of it is stemming from the fact that they cannot adjust in iterative motions. Yeah. So they're stuck in the mud from before yep. because they were not forward thinking enough. They were, at one point it was great, they just signed a new contract and we have this new technology, but 
that quickly becomes obsolete yeah. and it becomes old news. Yeah. So if you can design for change so that change is the new normal, it's, not, it's never, oh, we're done now. Mm -hmm. That philosophy, if that propagates, especially in the IT world, I think you'll see some of these spot deployments of automation, of AI, all this stuff that grabs the headlines, you'll see that to start propagate throughout organizations and entire industries. Yeah. And so, so, so certainly some of the COEs that uh, you guys have helped setting up is kind of the a first step for a lot of these companies to set up a, an area that can help kind of spread that um, speed of deployment and agile nature to the work that they do with some of these new uh, new technologies. So, um, yeah. So Rohan, we have a meetup coming up. What's the date of that? So 23rd of January, Wednesday the 23rd of January. It starts at 6.30 uh, p.m. We've got a few snacks, some drinks. Everyone can mingle, some good networking. And that'll be at Spaces and Hudson Yards? Spaces in Hudson Yards. Um, in Manhattan. In so. Manhattan, yep. Great. So it's going to be really good, really interesting topic. We'll expand on this and have Rob Rob's insight. Um, he's an IBM fellow and has lived and breathed this stuff, so it's going to be interesting to hear from him. Yeah, he was at our last meetup, and uh, and I and we went to the. Uh, he came to us with the uh, in the Pilsner House in Hoboken for drinks one night. Yep, I hung out with him for a little bit. So looking forward to that discussion. Encourage people if they listen to us and are in the New York area to come join us. Mm -hmm. You can go to the meetup page in our show notes. You'll see where that is. Mm -hmm. um, so thanks, guys. Any any parting comments? All good here. Just a good. couple of housekeeping things. I I, I want to thank uh, Bart and Jordan for building out. Uh, the studio here, we're you know fully functional here. Uh, right now, everything else we're doing is just uh, aesthetic. We're going to put a couple tables in here and maybe change out the lights and lava lamps. The lava lamp is on the uh, stairs. Sensory uh, deprivation. <laughs> I forgot to bring it down, but I did. I failed to mention that uh, in the prior shows we haven't uh, turned on the Himalayan salt lamp. I have it on full blast right now. Perfect. Yeah. Now we're really in the zone. Um, so I, I felt the difference that. too. I, I thought this episode was much better than the others. Yeah, I think it's the, I'm going to attribute more it to centered. the Himalayan <laughs> sure. salt lamp. I feel better. And also thanks to Rohan for, for getting the marketing done on this and getting this out on SoundCloud and Absolutely. iTunes, et cetera. We look forward to people giving us our feedback and uh, thanks very much. Thanks guys. Thanks. thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to the show today. Pardon the disruption. If you enjoyed our discussion, I'd invite you to head over to our homepage at www.rumjog.com. You can go there and check out our perspectives page and hear more podcast episodes, read some articles. It's some pretty interesting stuff. You can get access also to our digital disruption series. This is a meetup that we do mostly in New York and New Jersey area where we discuss the impact of these technologies on our society and the way we live and work. We do this alongside of industry experts, in various fields like crowdsourcing, automation, and blockchain, uh, the, the, the technologies that are disrupting our world today. Anyway, if you like that, you can also follow us on social media uh, at Twitter on the handle at Rumjog. We look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you.